This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Travel and technology have made our world seem smaller, but the aquatic realm continues to be a source of mystery. My guest today, Joe Cutler, a scientist and National Geographic explorer, has made it his mission to catalog freshwater fishes in Central Africa. Join us as Joe shares his journey from California to Cameroon and his hopes to preserve biodiversity in the region. We'll be right back after these messages. Has your pet ever suffered from digestive issues, anxiety, or joint pain? We want to address these issues and more with high-grade CBD oil from Alpha, made specifically for your furry friends. Using Alaskan salmon oil as a carrier, Alpha Pet's 500 CBD oil is lab-tested for quality, consistency, and safety. Plus, we are giving Pet Life Radio listeners 25% off and free shipping with code PL25 for a limited time. So visit myalphacbd.com dogs now. That's myalphacbd.com forward slash dogs. Because your furry friends are family. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Joe Cutler, ichthyologist, conservationist, and National Geographic explorer. Joe, thanks again for being with us today. Thanks, Roy. It's great to be here. So I, I like to ask my guests some personal questions, nothing too personal, but it's always fascinating to hear how each of you has gotten into aquatics, whether it's you know conservation or natural resource or, of course, obviously the aquarium hobby as well. So how did you get first interested in aquatics? You know, I've kind of always been in love with biodiversity, with, with all different kinds of life. Um, and I had the lucky fortune to grow up just up the hill from the California Academy of Sciences, which has a really great aquarium, um, the Steinhardt Aquarium. So as a kid, I spent, you know, countless days wandering through the Steinhardt Aquarium, kind of fascinated by the fishes and the diversity. And I also grew up in a family of naturalists and outdoorsmen and fishermen. So fish kind of was a natural fit for me. I was really interested in, in everything that was living. And uh, fish are just so diverse and uh, interesting that I, I kind of fell into fish pretty naturally. Now, I, I think in some of the bios, you talk about little fishing tournaments you had with your brothers. How were those? And, and did you usually win? <laughs> you know, actually, I'm the youngest of three, and so I was always chasing my brothers, trying to learn their secrets of how they were catching fish. But, you know, honestly, I was, I would say I held my own pretty well, and at this point, I think I'm, uh, I'm on par with both my brothers. But we used to just put together fishing tournaments. We used to spend summer months up at Clear Lake, up in Northern California, and it's full of large channel catfish and largemouth bass and crappie and bluegill and all sorts of native fishes as well. But we used to just put on our own fishing tournaments and entertain ourselves that way. So I've been catching and handling fish for as long as I can remember. 
And that's kind of one of the reasons, you know, kind of this camaraderie and family love affair with uh, fishes that has driven me to go on to become a freshwater conservationist to try to protect fish biodiversity. So kind of a big question, but not, not necessarily that big. Have you ever had an aquarium? Have you, have you kept fish at all? I have, although, you know, the first time I kept fishes was in Cameroon, and I'd collected some volcanic crater-like cichlids from Lake Berman, and I was like, okay, I need to keep these fish alive. Um, and so I set up a series of buckets out on my front porch and uh, kept uh, about 20 fry alive long enough that I could transport them back to the United States and get them into a university collection. And they're still alive at UC Berkeley now. But that was the first time I ever tried to keep fish alive in my own aquarium. That said, you know, growing up with parents who were naturalists, we always had aquariums in the house and they weren't always full of fishes. I, I really distinctly remember raising tadpoles and caterpillars and my parents were really interested in watching you know having us watch kind of the metamorphosis of life so i remember aquaria full of all sorts of things um, but my first time really keeping fish was in cameroon and uh, after that experience i went home and got myself an aquarium nice so so what did you end up putting it was it uh, the, the same groups of fish or did you uh, get some other fish you know, I, I got a diversity, but everything was African, sub-Saharan African. I loved seeing the fishes that I was collecting in the field appearing in aquaria stores near me. And that was really exciting for me to kind of take a bit of, of Africa and put it into my home and be able to observe it on a daily basis was really a, a cool thing. And I kind of fell in love with it. Unfortunately, I don't have electricity. I live off the grid right now. So I've only got a few fish in a pond and no aquarium at this point in my life. Uh, my dad's inherited my African tank. That's good. So now, now were you fishy as an undergrad at UC Davis? What did you uh, major in and, and how did you keep fishing your uh, system? You know, I majored in ecology and evolutionary biology and I was pretty honed in on fish. You know, I was considering doing uh, WFC, which is wildlife fish and conservation biology, but ended up wanting to go a little bit more down the evolution track. And I met a really, you know, inspirational professor, Dr. Peter Wainwright, when I was a, a freshman. And he kind of took me under his wing. And I spent several years of my undergrad volunteering in his lab studying fish biomechanics, um, specifically suction feeding dynamics. So I spent a lot of time looking at fish in aquaria, recording their feeding behavior, and kind of analyzing the biomechanics associated with their feeding. Um, and it was a really cool way for me to kind of get involved in fish research locally. But, you know, to me, it was, it felt like lab work. And I always knew I was more field oriented, I think. So then you joined the Peace Corps. What made you decide to do that? And did you have any idea where you thought you might want to go before uh, you were eventually stationed? Yeah. So when I was a senior in college, I decided to do a study abroad program. And I looked through the list of potential locations you could go. And I said, OK, where is the place I'm least likely to be able to return to and spend a long time? And I ended up doing my study abroad in Ghana, in West Africa, just imagining that when am I ever going to have the opportunity to live in West Africa again? And so I did this study abroad in Ghana. I traveled all over the country. I had the chance to fish in Lake Basumtwi, which is a meteor impact crater lake. And I traveled all over the country and I met all sorts of cool people, but I 
got really tired of being a tourist and sticking out like a sore thumb. And so I was learning Asante Twi and learning how to integrate as best I could. And I met a Peace Corps volunteer up in a village and he was speaking the local dialect, walking around the village as if it was his home. And I said, man, I need to I need to join the Peace Corps and I want to find a way to integrate into another culture and another world. So pretty soon after finishing the study abroad program, I applied for the Peace Corps and was kind of fast tracked into Peace Corps Cameroon because I had just returned from from West Africa. So it seemed like I had all the shots ready and I had survived my first bout in, in West Africa. So why not send me back? So I got into the Peace Corps in 2010 and was, you know, Cameroon's a really interesting country. It's uh, called Africa in miniature because you've got all the way from the Congolian forest up to, you know, the deserts near Lake Chad. And you've got two languages, it's bilingual French and English officially, but there are 270 local dialects spoken in Cameroon, a country the size of California. So really cool area to be stationed in the Peace Corps. And so I get there and have to learn French, um, which I had never spoken a word of French in my life. And then after a few months of training, I get assigned to the English speaking area in Cameroon. So <laughs> then I had to learn pidgin. So what was your um, kind of main focus in your duties there? So I was assigned as an agroforestry volunteer, um, which is kind of the biggest blanket for a lot of different tasks. But my primary project partner was uh, the Bokosi National Park. So I worked directly with Cameroon's Ministry of Forestry and Wildlife on basically establishing and establishing a national park. Um, the national park had been declared five years before I had gotten there. But when I arrived in, in Bangam, the village where I ended up living, the park had no management plan. The boundaries had never been demarcated. The local communities inside of the park had no idea that they were inside of a national park. So we had a lot of work just getting the park kind of established and running. And it involved a lot of, you know, really long expeditions out into these remote communities in, in the forest, um, basically to do environmental education and sensitization. It brought me into some, you know, pretty interesting interactions. You know, for example, we once apprehended a poacher in the in the Bacosi National Park, and he was walking between two villages. And, you know, me and the four eco guards, we didn't have a weapon, didn't have anything to protect ourselves. And there's a guy walking with a big loaded gun and a bunch of dead animals slung over his shoulder. And thankfully, he was, you know, pretty calm and willing to walk with us. But the moment we walked into the village, you know, the village was furious with us. They said, how could you apprehend, you know, our son? How could you? This guy's feeding his family. He's not a poacher. He's a son of the soil. And so what they told us was, you guys need to learn about your local environment. And that means these, you know, we are the people who protect this ecosystem. This is our forest. So we're happy to help you protect our ecosystem from poachers, but not from ourselves. So we ended up kind of doing a shift of focus and focusing a lot on education and developing relationships with those local communities. Um, and I think that that was really critical to actually getting the national park to, to function in the way it should. Uh, in Cameroon was kind of shifting the focus from law enforcement to kind of community empowerment and empowering local communities to protect their own resources. Yeah, no, that's that seems really important. So how did you go from Peace Corps to grad school to National Geographic and uh, Nature Conservancy? W were they all connected? 
Yeah, yeah. So when I was in the Peace Corps, I was uh, posted up in Bangam, and Bangam is in this volcanic area, which is surrounded by beautiful volcanic crater lakes. There were four volcanic crater lakes within walking distance of my house, three of which are fishless, and one of which is Lake Berman, which is probably one of the best examples of sympatric speciation in the whole world. It's a tiny volcanic crater lake, half a hectare in surface area with 11 endemic species of fish, including nine endemic sister species of cichlids that appear to have speciated within this lake. So as a Peace Corps volunteer and as a fish geek, I realized that I've got this unbelievable study system, you know, 20 miles downhill from my house. And so I built my own nets and contacted Peter Wainwright again and kind of got an idea of what I would want to do if I wanted to sample this ecosystem. So I built a few nets, bought some alcohol and started catching and documenting the fishes of Lake Berman. So as a Peace Corps volunteer, I was able to collect about a thousand fishes from Lake Berman uh, and transport those back and use that kind of to launch my graduate career studying Central African freshwater biodiversity and conservation. So to continue off of that, so I, you know, I got into graduate school um, and was immediately looking for opportunities to get back to Central Africa. I started grad school at UC Santa Cruz studying Cameroon's Crater Lake cichlids, but I wanted to get back. I had only really fished one lake in Cameroon and Cameroon's got 36 volcanic crater lakes. So I, I wrote an application to National Geographic and got a, a Young Explorers grant to return to Cameroon and continue those surveys of the volcanic crater lakes. So as an early career graduate student, you know, I, I flew back off to Cameroon and spent six months in the field with $5,000 and was able to survey 10 lakes and uh, 33 rivers and collect about 4,000 fish uh, representing 80 species. And that was kind of my first big expedition as a National Geographic Explorer. And, you know, a month after that ended, I got a phone call from the, the Nature Conservancy asking me if I was interested in working in Gabon, uh, which, of course, I said yes to. Wow, that's that's uh, awesome. You definitely kind of prepared yourself for that and, and uh, were ready to go when the opportunity arose. So uh, I wanted to ask one more quick question before we take a break and get into some of the uh, really fascinating stories and fishes that you have been uh, able to catch. And my question is, uh, the, the National Geographic Explorers chapter, I guess you're president of, what, what is this group exactly? And what is this kind of pilot groups trying to do? So this is a, so National Geographic has a lot of explorers um, and they're all kind of scattered. And most of those explorers can't really don't really interact with big national geographic it's hard for them to they don't have a contact person they don't get to go to national geographic headquarters in washington dc and they just kind of have a you know they get their funding and they feel like that's the entire grant but when you are brought in as a national geographic explorer um, there's a whole cadre of, of opportunities that comes with it whether this is educational outreach whether it is um, media opportunities, whether it's the opportunities to pitch your stories. And so one of the strategies that National Geographic has adopted is to develop more of a, a family of National Geographic explorers. And so they're piloting kind of regional chapters of National Geographic explorers who are going to meet other explorers, meet National Geographic staff, and also be empowered to kind of interact with the public. So the pilot chapter was 
rolled out in, in the San Francisco Bay Area in 2017, and I've been serving as the president ever since. But we've just rolled out another pilot in Manila, so now there are two. There's about to be another chapter rolled out in Melbourne, Australia, and Nairobi, Kenya. And there's about to be a call for up to 35 other chapters around the world kind of using our chapter as a model. So it's been really successful. And also, I'm really excited because I will be able to transition power to uh, another group of volunteers from now on because I've got a lot of travel in store and want to make sure that this chapter continues to, to serve as it has for the future explorers as well as it served us. That's great. Well, let's take a short break and we will continue our discussion with Joe Cutler after these messages from our sponsors. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite is nutrition. Pick up two bottles of Lico Chops. Get the third bottle free. New improved Lico Chops with omega-3, omega-6, vitamin E. And now, six extra direct-fed microbials. Even better for the digestive tract and immune system. Try Lico Chops. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest Joe Cutler, ichthyologist, conservationist, and National Geographic explorer. So, I really appreciate you taking the time to give us that that um, history, kind of how you got into the situation and sort of exciting life that you're leading right now. Let's talk stories now. I know you've got so many, and I've read a couple um, online that you provided for me. Definitely um, some of them, maybe not for the faint of heart in terms of uh, people that are used to creature comforts, but you know, really, really exciting stuff. Can you uh, maybe share your very first or second assignment that maybe was the most memorable? Yeah, you know, one of the uh, one of my go to stories, you know, when I went back to Cameroon to survey these volcanic crater lakes, most of these lakes have never been studied by an ichthyologist. We have no idea what species of fish are going to be in these lakes, if any of them. And so I was really excited about a few of these lakes because I knew they'd never been studied and they weren't too high in elevation and weren't too isolated. So they may actually have, you know, an undiscovered species flock, which really could be my my great scientific achievement of this expedition. Um, so one of those lakes, Lake Edib, was my kind of my jewel. It was the lake I really wanted to get to, but it was also the most difficult lake of the 10 volcanic crater lakes in Cameroon. It's really remote and isolated, and the nearest community to the lake had been abandoned about 15 years ago. So you have to basically stay in this ghost town of Edib to access this lake. But I was sure I needed to get there and I was sure I was going to find fish. So I made, made the effort to actually go out to Lake Edib and survey it. So this involves, you know, taking a motorcycle taxi for about four hours and then hopping on the back of a overloaded truck for about another two hours. You transfer there then you get on the back of a bigger, more overloaded truck and you slide through the mud for about three to four hours just to get you to Bangam. 
where I actually had served in the Peace Corps. And then from there, you got to get on a, onto another motorcycle taxi for about six hours to get to Mwambong. Mwambong is the last spot on the road before you have to go into Edib. So you're already spending two days of really, really, really tough travel on, on bad roads just to get to the end of the road. And then you've got to walk into the forest. And it's a full day walk from Wambong to Edib. And there's, you know, minimal trails. Only hunters go into that area. And it is really remote and isolated. So the chief tells me, you know, you got to sleep here. You can't leave tonight. And I'm going to send you with a hunter so that you don't get lost in the forest. So I, you know, sleep in the in the chief's hut that night. And he serves me the traditional dish of the Bokosi people, which is called mpoop, which is a uh, pounded fish meal mixed with flour and then wrapped in a leaf and steamed and it's a bit like uh it's a bit like pudding with bones that tastes very fishy <laughs> so you know you eat your poop dinner and you wake up the next day and you meet your your hunter guide and you hike out into the forest and after a full day of hiking you arrive in an abandoned village and you know an abandoned village in africa decomposes quickly i mean there are trees growing in these houses Every abandoned nook is full of some sort of animal living in it. There are snakes in the houses, bats, spiders, and tons of rodents. You know, once you get to Edeb, the town of Edeb, you're not even at the lake. So the next day we set out, we sleep in this abandoned village, and we hike out, and we're hacking our way through the forest to get to this lake. And once we finally make it to the lakeside, the lake is pitch black. The water itself is black. Just because there's so much decomposition and the tannins in the water have stained the water black. And it is really creepy. And I'd been hearing stories from all the villages along the route that, you know, this Lake Edeb is a weird, uh, weird lake. It's haunted. So I get there and it's kind of creepy. But of course, you know, I put my traps in the water. I'm gearing up. I'm going to have to swim my gill net across this lake to stretch it. So I'm starting to strip down to jump in the water and I realized that I've got leeches all over my body that all in the surrounding area of this lake it's just kind of swampy and there are just these leeches all over so I'm pulling the leeches off the hunter now is like freaking out because he hates leeches and so me and this guy were there like shouting and screaming in the middle of the forest in Cameroon pulling these leeches off of us and then I'm like okay well now it's time for me to jump in the water and <laughs> stretch my gill net so I spent a week at Lake Edib every day hiking back and forth from the abandoned village, stretching my gill nets, checking my gill nets, checking my traps. I got leeches every single day, and there was not a single fish in that lake. Um, lake Edib was fishless, and what I ended up doing was walking down the outlet river, and there's a huge waterfall probably 200 meters downstream that seems to block all fish passage. So I did all that sampling, got all those leeches, did all that suffering and uh, didn't catch a single fish. But if nothing else, now we know that Lake Edib is fishless. That's a great story. So um, I guess what was the maybe next positive story that you had? Was there anything uh, in the, your next adventure that maybe made you feel a little bit more uh, hopeful? Oh, yeah. You know, one of the things that's incredible about studying freshwater biodiversity in Central Africa is how much more we have to discover. You know, when I've been serving river systems in Gabon, about 10%, 10 to 15% of the fishes that we collect are undescribed and new to science. And it is really incredible when you go, we're sampling with electrofishing 
And there has been very limited electrofishing in Gabon. And so we're able to survey habitats that have been minimally surveyed. So I'm thinking about small rapids. You just go and you shock a rapid and the catfish that come pouring out of that rapid are unbelievable. I mean, you'll go to a single spot and you have four or five undescribed species come out and you're like, we've been fishing here for five minutes. And it's absolutely unbelievable how much diversity is out there, how much more there is to discover. And also that, you know, our science is actually bringing attention to these fishes that were previously unknown so that we can actually start talking about protecting these species. So, for example, we just described a new species of, of cyprinid, a small minnow from southern Gabon, Enteromius pinamaculatus. And this species is known from two sampling localities, one of which is right next to a proposed dam site. So if that dam is built, that species goes from being vulnerable to endangered, if not critically endangered. And so we've been able to use our biodiversity and taxonomy kind of as tools to promote conservation in the region. So that makes me really hopeful about, you know, kind of the future of these ecosystems. So can you describe maybe uh, the cyprinid? And I, I'm also curious about the catfishes. Were those like Cynodonis species or what other, what kind of well, catfishes let, were I'll they? I'll start with the cyprinid because sure. it, you know, minnows tend to be kind of, you know, some people can say minnows are boring. This was like the most beautiful little cyprinid you could ever find. It uh, has a really distinctive set of coloration. It's got three big round spots on the flanks and a small uh, lateral black line. And then the dorsal fin has seven or eight distinct round spots on them. And there's no other minnows in, in Africa other than one species that have uh, a similar coloration pattern. And the spotting on the dorsal fin is really unique. And it really is quite beautiful. So as far as Enteromius go, the small cyprinids, I think that this is one of the most beautiful that I've ever collected. It sounds definitely sounds like it. And then the catfishes, Roy. I am just a catfish lover. And the catfishes that come out of the rapids are super neat. You have a lot of amphibious catfishes, the mountain loach catfishes. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and, and their diversity is so poorly understood. I think we've probably got as many undescribed species in Gabon as we have described species right now. So we've probably got, you know, another five or six to describe. And are and, these the, I forgot, are these, the, are these kind of the flat sort of stick to the rock type? Yeah, yeah, but they don't have any sucker discs. Okay. But there are other catfishes, you know, the Chelaglanus, that do have sucker disc mouths and Adipodontus. So you've got sucker disc ones, you've got ones that are really dorsoventrally compressed and really just kind of stick to the bottom. Like I'm thinking Notoglenidium buchangai is one of the weirdest looking fish ever, just total flathead catfish adapted to just sit at the bottom underneath a fast current. And I haven't even mentioned the Dumea or Fractura catfishes, which are these super elongate armored catfishes. They're usually teeny tiny, but they are in really fast moving waters and they have these big pectoral and pelvic fins that help them to kind of cling on to the bottom and really cool armor scoots on their sides. Very neat fishes. I wish that they were in the aquarium trade or at least more abundant. When you're collecting, do you, how often do you bring live specimens back or is that pretty difficult to do? It's next to impossible, unfortunately. 
You know, we're out for generally about six months on an expedition. So, you know, most of what we catch goes into formaldehyde and ends up in a museum collection somewhere, which is really valuable because, you know, we may be the first people to sample this site and we may be the last if a dam is built in that region. So I think it's really important to catalog the diversity. But also it's a lot different if you're bringing live specimen back, the legality of it export and import is just a whole different beast. So we've really focused on just bringing back preserved specimen. I have brought some fish back, like I mentioned, the cichlids from Lake Berman that I brought back. But it's really been just when I've been lucky enough to go and catch a few fish the day before I fly home, I try to bring them home. But I have thought quite a bit about trying to develop more of an export an opportunity for export of live fishes from Cameroon and Gabon, because I do think that that would be a really good complement to promote freshwater conservation in the region and provide more value for the native fishes. Yeah, and I know, um, again, obviously, if it's done properly, you know, that's always potentially an opportunity to get some kind of arc breeding programs going, you know, for, for some of these fish that you think might be more of an issue at risk. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, in my opinion, as a conservationist, especially in Gabon, Gabon is sparsely populated, highly urbanized, and very few people are fishing in these rivers. The threats to these species aren't overfishing, it's habitat destruction uh, associated with large-scale development. So that's road development, dam development, mining, industrial agriculture, timber extraction. None of that is, you know, local consumption. And I do know that there can be over-exploitation, especially for the aquaria trade. But as long as it's well-managed and regulated, I don't think that that would be the biggest immediate threat to Gabon's freshwater biodiversity. So now I I think in some of the stories you had online, you mentioned some cichlids and also killies. But with the the cichlids, I, I, I recall one story where you talked about a couple... I think in the area that you saw some Nile tilapia in, can you talk a little bit about maybe threats from introduction of Nile tilapia? Is that a pretty common thing you're seeing? Yeah, yeah. Invasive species are a major issue, and it's all derived from the the fish farming, from aquaculture. So basically, the, the big invasives or the big introduced species are Nile tilapia, Clarius gariapinus, so uh, walking catfish, heterobranchus, and uh, Nile arowana. So all of those, the, the heteroticus, Niloticus, all of those are pretty widely distributed in freshwater ecosystems, unfortunately. So any highly impacted ecosystem, you're going to find Nile tilapia, and you probably will find heteroticus, the Nile arowana. Throughout, for example, Gabon's great river, the Ugué, Throughout the, you know, kind of middle Uguay, where the biggest fishery is around Lombarine, the biggest catch is in Heterotus and Oreochromus, Niloticus. So it's not native species any longer, to just give you an idea of how much biomass of invasive species there are. But I think what's really critical is when those species are being introduced into areas with critically endangered, range-restricted species like Cameroon's volcanic crater lakes. So... One, you know, Cameroon's got all these volcanic crater lakes, and two of the ten that I surveyed had introduced Oreochromus niloticus, Nile tilapia, and one of them had Heteroticus niloticus. So Lake Burumbi Kato 
which actually is one of the most biodiverse lakes that I sampled in Cameroon, the local peoples themselves actually introduced Nile tilapia and Nile arowana into the lake because their local markets were flooded by frozen mackerel coming in as bycatch from tuna fisheries. And so they, as historic fishermen, were no longer able to sell their catch for a profit. And so they were looking to augment their fishery by putting in new species. Now, there are several endemics or near endemics in that lake ecosystem. So the impacts of that introduction are probably going to be pretty significant. But it's an issue of providing livelihoods. You know, if those fishermen had been able to make a living selling their fish, their native fish, they wouldn't have felt the need to introduce another species. So that's an interesting case where, honestly, if we're going to talk conservation, we need to talk development first. And I think that that is often the case in Central Africa. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I'm, I think a lot of folks sort of coming and looking at it from the outside want to say this is what these people need to do or how these guys need to handle this. But, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, when people need to eat, it's definitely a you got to kind of look at the big picture. It's really um, it's very complicated. It is. It is. And, you know, I get really excited about teeny tiny small fish species. And when I go and talk to a hungry person, they say, oh, I would eat that. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's a very different perspective to come about it. But, you know, I think if nothing else, studying these fishes and making people see them as more than just food is is very important. And I can give one example of that. So in Berman, I had been there for years. I'd been sampling fishes. I had a really good relationship with the chief and his family. And, you know, he always kind of was like, oh, Joe, do your fish stuff. You know, it'll be fine. And so he never really paid attention to it. But one day he and I went out and we actually surveyed his farm and we sampled two streams that came together. There's a confluence on his farm and we sampled the little tributary and then the major stream. And we caught a bunch of fish together. It was a really fun day of sampling and we caught some of the most beautiful killifish I've ever seen. And so, you know, we're keeping these fish alive because we want to take them back and take live photographs before euthanizing and preserving them. So I've got these beautiful killies and, you know, he and I catch them, we see them in the field and we're like, those are nice. And once I get one of these killifish into the photo aquarium, that fish just started putting on a display and it was really, you know, coming right up, flashing its colors and expanding its fins. It was really beautiful. So I called the chief over and for the first time in his life, you know, he's a 40 year old guy for the first time in his life, he's seeing a fish underwater. And he's seeing a really beautiful fish putting on a display underwater. And he and I sat there on the floor, basically in the dark in this hut, looking at this killifish. And he was like, wow, it's beautiful. And it totally changed the way that he interacted with fish and thought about fishes. And I thought that that was really kind of a powerful experience, seeing someone go from being, you know, fish or food to being, you know, fish are much more than just food simply by interacting with them. And I think that that's one of the things that I've kind of tried to do through my research is just kind of share the the wonder of all this biodiversity with as many people as possible. So do you have that opportunity a lot with uh, like the children in the villages or even, you know, the, I guess more than just the, you know, the chief? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. My, my best field assistants are school kids. You know, like you get a bunch of eight to 10 year old kids and you're like, Here's a couple nets. Let's go catch fish. 
oh, they have so much fun with you. And they're they're just sponges, you know. They're ready and excited to to soak up information. And a lot of them actually, you know, do fishing on their own and can provide you with really important information about, you know, the life histories about some of these species. So, you know, if you work with local people, they're there at the river every day. And so they see when the fish migrate. And I would just be lucky if I ever encountered that. So I feel like it's been a great opportunity to, you know, kind of learn from local people and also, you know, kind of share my knowledge because, hell, I know the, you know, the scientific name for most of these species, but they know where to find them and they know where they eat and all that fun stuff. So it's kind of a fun exchange. So um, as we're kind of getting near the end, I have a couple more questions. First, you have to describe and tell me about maybe, uh, I'll give you two if you, can, if you can't name one, the, the most incredible, beautiful, or other you know, amazing fish that you have seen for the first time. And just a little bit, maybe a little bit of a story of that. If, if you can't think of just one, you know, I'll, I'll give you two, but are there any fish like that? Yeah, yeah, totally. I was sampling in the Mungo River in Cameroon back in, in, the, in, in my Peace Corps days, so back in 2013, and I was dip netting out in this like kind of rocky habitat, fast moving, and I pulled something out, and I honestly thought it was a benthic macroinvertebrate. It was a tiny little black thing, and it was kind of wiggling in the bottom of my net. And upon closer inspection, it was a fish, but it was the weirdest looking fish I've ever seen. And it was the first more myrid I'd ever seen. Uh, so those cool. are, you know, elephant nose fishes or uh, baby whales, I think, in, in the aquaria trade. But this was a Brinomerus brachyctes. So jet black, looks like a torpedo, club-shaped tail, and just the weirdest looking fish. When you're used to seeing killifish, carassiforms, and cichlids, you pull a myrid out, and that's a really weird thing. So that was definitely a noteworthy experience, and I've really kind of dove in on myrid since then. But one of the other most, you know, remarkable things that I've ever encountered, I love electric catfish. I think that they're probably the coolest thing in Central Africa. And I've caught electric catfish all the way, you know, from a centimeter long to, you know, a, a foot and a half long. And they, uh, a big electric catfish gives you a big shock and they are unmistakable. And, you know, one day I caught three big electric catfish in my trap. And it's pouring rain, and I've got to get these electric catfish out of my trap and into my into my carrying vessel. And I'm sticking my hand in and getting electrocuted by these <laughs> fishes and, uh, you know, just making a fool of myself. And there's a whole crowd of people watching me deal with these electric catfishes. But electric catfish are really distinctive fish. I mean, they look like swimming sausages, no dorsal fin, really fatty fishes. And when they're young, they're pink. And they've just got a, a, a black band right at the, the caudal peduncle. And they're so distinct that, like, once you learn what an electric catfish is, you're not ever going to mistaken an electric catfish for any other fish. But in 2014, my team and I were sampling in the Makuku region, and we caught what we thought was a baby electric catfish, and we threw it in with all the other fishes. And when we get it to the photo aquarium and we dump it in, we realized that it was a tadpole that was mimicking an electric catfish. <laughs> so it is a tadpole with that pink coloration, looks like a swimming sausage, has the black band on the caudal peduncle, and it's got legs. And it completely fooled all of the ichthyologists on our team. And it's, it's a completely new example of mimicry. And I just thought that that was so unique and so cool. 
And I've never seen another one since. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that I catch another, you know, catfish tadpole mimic. You probably told all his friends. So now they have to come up with another disguise. Thanks to you. So I guess so. <laughs> so another question. And uh, as we kind of get come to a close. So what do you think are maybe the positives that have happened because of your work and the and still ongoing challenges? You know, what's the you know, because of all the other issues that many of these countries have to deal with that are, you know, really more life and death type. How do you kind of see what you're doing, helping to kind of increase or preserve that biodiversity. I know it's a big goal of yours. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I'm realistic about my hopes. You know, as a result of my serving in Cameroon of the volcanic crater lakes, the Rainforest Trust actually went to start protecting Lake Burumbi and Bow, which is the most biodiverse crater lake in the southwest region of Cameroon. Unfortunately, soon thereafter, a civil war broke out in Cameroon, and it's still going on in that region. So basically, all the conservation efforts and all the legwork we put in in Cameroon's on pause simply because of political instability. So that's that's pretty tough, and it's a reality working in Central Africa. I have very high hopes for Gabon and conservation in Gabon because Gabon has such a small population and a very conservation-oriented government, such that I think that you know, if they can be taking the lead on freshwater conservation in the region, if they can be kind of the pilot for the rest of Africa or the rest of the tropical world on how to really protect big, diverse freshwater ecosystems, um, I think that they may do it. And I think that we could save hundreds of species. Gabon's Ugué River has over 400 species of fish in it. If we stop proposed dam development on that, on that river system, we've really done a lot. So I have high hopes because I think that freshwater conservation is the future of conservation. We have functioning terrestrial protected areas. We have marine protected areas, but freshwater lakes and freshwater rivers, that whole system of, of protection is not well established for freshwaters. And I think it's kind of the next frontier. Yeah, and definitely because of, uh, as you mentioned, all the development, it's, it's always going to be kind of at, at risk. So... Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank very much again my guest, Joe Cutler, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Joe, did you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners, things they could do, lessons learned, anything like that? Yeah, you know, one of the things I'll say, you know, we live on a blue planet. Oceans cover 70% of planet Earth. Freshwater ecosystems, in contrast, cover less than 1% of our planet. And freshwater ecosystems have about as many fish species as all of the oceans combined. A quarter of all the world's vertebrate biodiversity lives in freshwater. I think we need to focus our attention on freshwater conservation now, and I hope you all will join me in that effort. I'm putting together my next major expedition with National Geographic, the Ugué Mega Transect, to survey and hopefully protect Gabon's Great River. So I hope you'll follow along with that. And uh, and I hope you all will find your river and protect it as well. Well, thanks very much again, Joe, for all, all the work you've been doing to help conserve these incredible spaces and uh, just for uh, giving us some of your time here. Thank you, Roy. It's been great. And uh, I hope we get the chance to talk again soon. Yeah, definitely. I, I de we'll definitely have you on again. We'll hit on uh, Mormyrids and a couple other uh, stories. I'm sure you'll have many after. 
So, oh yeah, headed to Gabon soon. So, always more stories to come. <laughs> so, please be sure to check out Joe's web links, which we'll have on his Aquarium Mania guest page. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy@petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at PetLifeRadio.com. Until next time, keep your aquariums clean and healthy, and stay tuned for more conservation stories from Joe Cutler. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.